So our pastor is not with us today, as you have made uh, notice of that. Um, he is attending with his family uh, the marriage of uh, Jeremy Jones. So we're celebrating that this weekend. But in his absence, he has invited a friend of his and a friend of ours, Jared Hall, to fill the pulpit. Jared serves at Moody Bible Institute as the stewardship representative and is an alumni of both the undergraduate and graduate programs. He has a monthly program on WDLM called Hall Talk. In addition to this, he serves as the board of directors for Life in Messiah, which happens to be the United States' oldest mission organization reaching Jewish people with the gospel. His wife, Melissa, is a school teacher, and they have three boys. They currently reside in the Quad Cities. So please welcome me in joining Jared Hall to our pulpit. Thanks, well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a great Sunday. Wow, okay, affirmative, yeah. Good, yeah. Uh, I have a better picture than that now. You can take that one off the slide. It'll be, yeah, that'd be great. Maybe black screen, yeah, do that. Um, in addition to having three boys, we also have a dog because it became very clear that my wife wanted a fourth child and we settled on a dog. And it was a boy dog. Now, if the, Lord, if the Lord was going to guarantee my wife a girl, we'd have four children right now, but the risk of having a fourth boy was too high. It was too much. She wasn't prepared for that. It was too much. Um, but <laughs> as a result, we have recently moved in this dog that we spent hours and hours and hours training has completely regressed. And so pray for my wife because... She was like, it's like having a baby all over again. Like, he doesn't know what to do. And so she's struggling. Uh, and she has pneumonia right now. And so, yeah. and, and all the other things that come with raising three boys. So, as you can imagine, there's a lot, you know. Most of them wear clothes now, and we're really excited about that. So, they're 10, 7, and 4. So, you know, finally got that 10-year-old under control. We're pretty excited about that. Uh, also, be praying for WDLM. For those who listen in the morning, you know that there's been a lot of changes. Uh, we have a new morning show host with Seth starting. And then uh, Deb Gustafson recently lost her husband, Charlie, of nearly 40 years. Uh, we had the funeral for that yesterday. He had fallen off a ladder about a month ago uh, while working at Youth Hope and Moline suffered uh, multiple fractures in his ribs uh, and multiple compression fractures in his spine and ultimately uh, succumbed to those um, injuries at the University of Iowa City. So very unexpected, uh, very hard. So be praying for Deb in this season of loss. And um, what's the last thing I wanted to mention? Oh. Uh, if you haven't, we just had Founders Week at Moody. We had Joel Stoll. How many of you remember Joel Stoll from Moody? He was our uh, seventh president. He's actually back at Moody as the president's advisor, and he led off Founders Week. And so you can go to, if you Google Founders Week or go to YouTube and search Founders Week, Joe had a phenomenal message from Wednesday night that would really, really encourage all of you uh, 
uh, with the theme of being rekindling your faith. So that's enough about that. Let me pray and we'll get into today's message. Father, as we look to you, we acknowledge that you are holy, that you're not like us, Lord, that you transcend, you're outside of time, and yet, Lord, you're imminent, and you're present, and you care, and you deeply know us. And Father, you see the image bearers, and you also see the sin. And I pray, Lord, that in this morning as we go into your word, that you would do a transforming work, helping us to be more like Christ, enabling us in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we live, to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus, to be salt in preserving this world until the full number of Gentiles come in. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning with a story. J. Vernon McGee, who's a famous Bible commentary, was in Pasadena, California back in the 1940s, and there's a really famous parade that happens in Pasadena, California. Anybody know what that parade is? The Rose Parade, that's right. So he's watching the Rose Parade, and there was this truck pulling this, per- this float behind them, and it was covered in the most beautiful American red roses that you'd ever seen. An astounding sight. And as that float was coming past Jay, he heard a And right there in front of him, that float came to a halt. Jamming up the entire parade route behind him. Why? Because the person driving the truck that was pulling that float had ran out of gas. And do you want to know what the theme of that year's parade was? Be prepared. (laughs) And do you want to know who was sponsoring that float? The Standard Oil Company. Can you imagine how that would feel to be the guy who jammed up the Rose Parade running out of gas as the Standard Oil Company? I mean, that would be a terrible feeling, wouldn't it? To have all of those eyes gleaming on you. I mean, the average person doesn't even like public speaking, let alone ruining one of the most famous parades in American history. Now, you and I probably can't relate to that, right? Probably none of us have ruined a parade. If you have, I'd love to hear that story afterwards. I'm always looking for more material. So, but most of us have probably had the experience of the flat tire. Anybody had that experience before? Where you pulled off on the side of the road? That's a position of weakness, right? I've had a disproportionate amount of flat tires in my life because I've driven a disproportionate amount of bad cars in my life. And some of them get really interesting. The old 74 bridge had one in the middle of that. Yeah, it moved a lot more than you would have thought. Yeah, (laughs) awful feeling. One of my most recent ones happened a couple years ago. I was actually driving to the radio station in Coal Valley to help host the morning show. And I was just thinking in my head, this has been kind of an interesting year. And as I was having that thought, I heard a, 
And I went, oh no. Now it's 5.30 in the morning. It's dark outside. It was October. And I started to pull off onto the shoulder. I'm like, this is how it happens. This is how I go. I'm going to be changing a tire on Interstate 80. I'm going to get hit by a car because somebody's texting and it's going to be over. My kids are going to be orphans. That's where my mind's going. And then I look to my left and I see a median right there, one of those pull-through spots for emergency vehicles or people who don't care about rules. And so I went over there and I pulled off and I was like, thank you, Lord, for that. Now, I know the routine. I'm very good at this. I can change tires pretty quickly. One time, I got a flat tire coming out of downtown Chicago where 9094 split, and I had to park right in this little triangle area that was big enough for the car. I mean, I could have made a career in NASCAR pit crew. I changed that tire so fast. Wow. I mean, those things were zooming past at 70 miles per hour just right here on my rear end. It was breathtaking. And so I get out of the car and I jack that tire up and got all the bolts off and I go to pull that tire off and it's seized on there. It's seized on there. Now I'm no sissy. The last, the tire before that that I had to change, my cousin leaned up against it and the car fell onto his foot and I had to deadlift the car off of his foot. But this tire, this tire was way worse than that. I mean, I'm pulling on it, I'm pulling on it, but I'm also a little nervous because that last time when the car rolled off the jack, it was the same jack. So I'm going, I don't want to knock this car off this jack again at 5.30 in the morning in the dark. It's going to be a bad day. So I start doing what any millennial would do. I pull out my phone. I Google, how do you get a seized tire off? I'm watching YouTube videos right there on the side of the road. Thank you, Lord, for the internet. And I'm trying all these different tricks. And finally, a state trooper pulls up behind me. It was the first time that I'd ever been happy to have those flashing lights behind me. And so he comes out and he goes, you got a flat tire? I said, I got a flat tire. He said, have you tried this? I said, I tried that. He said, have you tried this? I tried that. He said, okay, I want you to try this. He said, I want you to put those bolts on, but loose. And then we're going to take the car down. And you're going to get in that car and you're going to drive it. And he said, I want you to go like this. I want you to go like that. Put it in reverse and go like this and go like that. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I hop into the car. I've never done this before. I hop in the car, put it in reverse, crank that wheel, backing up, crank it, backing up, put it in drive, pulling forward, pulling forward, get out, jack it up, tires no more loose than it was before him. Then he asked me something that no police officer has ever asked me. He said, may I drive your car? <laughs> now, what would you do? <laughs> I said, sure. So he gets in my car. He puts it in drive. And wham, he takes off, and he's flying. He goes down through the ditch and whips that thing back around. And I was like, oh, you meant like that. <laughs> and not have that evasive driving course. Thank you, sir. Jack that tire up. It's still seized on there. I mean, that thing is not going anywhere. So he goes into the back of his car. He brings that, this big black pipe, and he gets underneath that car, and he just starts beating that tire crazy until finally it pops loose. And I go, oh, my goodness. This is not your first time. And he goes, nope, not my first time. He's like, I can tell it's not your first time either. I said, it has not been. He, I said, do you do this often? And he goes, I've had to take tires to my house because they were flat to fill them up. I'm like, you deserve an accommodation. 
I mean, you're the most amazing stage trooper that I've ever met in my entire life. Way to go. But this is why I share that story. Because I was in a position of weakness. And what did I need? Help. I needed a savior. I needed something that I couldn't provide myself. I finally got to the morning show. I was about 30 minutes late. Jeremy Jones was still running the board at the time. And he, he goes, was your flat tire on Interstate 80? I said, it sure was. He goes, I saw you. I said, thanks so much for stopping to help. He said, I was running late, and I figured I'd be more help here than there. And I said, you know what? You're probably right. You probably wouldn't have been any more help. That's okay. Now, truth of the matter is, none of us ever want to be weak. If any of you would have driven past me on the side of the road that morning, none of you would have had any inkling inside of you that would have gone, huh, I wish I was that guy. <laughs> Nobody here would have went, you know what, I'm having kind of a, an abysmal day. It's a three or a four on a ten scale. If I was that guy, it'd be a nine or a ten, right? None of us have ever had that thought. None of us have ever looked at somebody like me on the side of the road and been envious of them in that position because we know it's a position of weakness. None of us envy the weak person. But because the mark of sin on all of us, when we get honest, we're all actually weak. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the strength. And despite all of the precautions, all of the coaching, all of the counseling, the weakness remains. So what do we do with it? What does the Lord want us to do with it? So this morning I want to take a look at a passage of a man who was weak, who was in a position of weakness, and what the Lord did, and see what we can glean for our own life, instead of simply trying to run from the weakness, or ignore the weakness, or hide from the weakness, or downplay the weakness, that we can lean into it the way that the Lord intended. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, will you open up with me to the book of Judges, chapter 7. The book of Judges, chapter 7. We won't be going through the whole chapter, just a portion of it, seeing what we can glean from the story of Gideon. Now, as a reminder, before we start this passage, as you're turning there, in the previous chapter, in Judges 6, what we saw, or if you're familiar with the passage, what you've seen in the past is that Gideon was being called by the Lord to go into battle against the Midianites, who was a much bigger warrior, much bigger army than the Israelites. And as they were going to go into battle, Gideon said, can I just make sure you're really with me, Lord? The Lord said, yeah. So he did that fleece test. And you remember, remember the fleece test? Like, let's set it out. We'll keep it dry. You make everything else wet. We'll set it back out. We'll keep everything else dry. Make sure it's wet. That's Gideon. He's the fleece testing guy. So keep that in mind as you go through this passage that we're dealing with a man that when the Lord spoke to him, he said, let me just check to make sure. And it wasn't enough to check once, he had to check twice. 
right? That's Gideon. Anybody relate to that? I've never put fleece out. Has anybody ever tried that before? Don't. Oh, just one. Okay. Almost two. You're just scratching your head, though. Yeah. Verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Let's pause real quick and take a look at this passage. So Jerubbabel is the name given to Gideon because he was willing to tear down the altars of Baal or Baal or Baal, depending on how uh, you've heard it pronounced. And so that's where the name comes from because they said, let Baal contend against him. That's where the name Jerubbabel comes from. Next, what's the significance of the location? Did you know that outside of this current war that Israel's in, that you can hop on a plane, you can fly to Israel, and you can go to this very spring that Gideon was at? That you can go to the spring of Herod here. That spring of Herod, Herod means trembling. You notice the significance of the fact that when Gideon gives the men a chance to leave, what happens place of trembling, right? It's a place of fear. You know what else is interesting is that the location is a spring, not a well. It's a source of water, but it's not a source of water that they have to work for. In Old Testament times, in order to have a well, you'd have to dig where there was a spring. And when you think about a well, it's really a picture of man's effort and God's provision working together. Man dig, God provides the water. But a spring, man doesn't have to work for it, right? It's just there. It's just God's provision. And I think we'll see even in that, that that's a foreshadowing of how the Lord is going to work in this incident. Now notice that even though the Israelites are already outnumbered, there's still too many. And what does the Lord not want to have happen? He doesn't want Israel to boast that if they win this battle, they'll go, we saved ourselves. Because the Lord knows that's not true. It's not true. But he wants to make sure that they know that. So what does he do? He says, let your soldiers decide to go home if they're afraid to go in battle. Now, as Americans, this seems so counterintuitive, right? Like, this seems almost shameful. Like, who in the world would even allow their soldiers to go home if they're afraid? Who would? you got to stand and fight. But did you know that if we go back to the Torah, to the book of Deuteronomy, we'll see that the Lord had actually made this provision already? That any soldier of Israel, if they were afraid, that they were to not go into battle. And the reason being is this. Is that the Lord only ever wanted men fighting on His behalf who trusted Him. The Lord never wanted anyone representing Him in battle who didn't trust Him. And fear is the opposition of trust. Polar opposites. And so that provision that he tells Gideon to enact, it's already been given. It's not unique. 
It's already laid out in Deuteronomy. Now think about this. You've got 32,000 men and 22,000 remain. And you're the fleece guy. You're the fleece guy. If you're Gideon, how are you feeling about 22,000 leaving and being left with 10,000? And you're already outmanned. How do you feel about that? No. Right? It's terrible. It's awful. Now, let's take a look at what happens next. Verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hand to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his own home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So here we go. So they're at the spring, and they're in the water, and there's, he's saying, hey, whoever laps like a dog, you've seen a dog lap, I don't have to demonstrate it for you, and versus those who cup, okay? So whoever laps versus whoever cups, that's how you're going to separate it. Now some people in writing commentaries on this or preaching on this, puts a big emphasis on the, on the position of the person, that those who were bowing down were ready for battle. And that was the 300. And so it was their posture of readiness to have their eyes up. That's why the Lord chose them. Now, what's the Lord's whole purpose in doing this? Refining. Is to make the Lord the one who receives all the glory and praise, right? So why then would the posture of drinking water that would then give praise to the man's readiness be the thing that would make the difference? Wouldn't it, right? Because here's the truth. If you ever watched a boxing match or UFC, nobody's ever looking at those guys and go, you see how that one drinks the water? Yeah, he's going to get knocked out. Yeah, it's going to be bad. Doesn't make any sense at all, right? How you lap water has no bearing on your ability to fight. It's a nearly completely inconsequential way of determining who should go where. And that's what the Lord's doing. But it goes all the way down to 300. So you're Gideon. You're the fleece guy. You're pretty nervous about this whole thing already. And you're starting at 32,000, and now you're down to 300. 300. Now, the Lord is kind. The Lord is kind. But notice what's happened here. It's been reducing. Reducing. How many of you have been in a series of reduction? where you have less than before. Maybe it's a loss of a spouse. Maybe it's a loss of a friend. Maybe it's a loss of a child. Maybe it's a loss of financial resources due to inflation or loss of a job. We go through these seasons of reduction. And oftentimes the temptation 
is to go, Lord, where are you? Lord, how do I carry on? But why does the Lord allow us to go through seasons of reduction? What is he doing here? It's to increase dependence. I've been going through a season of reduction. I've been losing friends left and right. Just found out on Thursday that I'm going to lose another friend to cancer. And it's going to be fast. And what I know to be true is this. Is that as the Lord is reducing to drive up my dependence. That's what He's doing. And the sooner and the faster we get on board with accepting that and not fighting Him with that, the more we can begin to see what He's going to do next. So let's see what He's going to do next here. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian in all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dreams and the interpretation, he worshipped. Let's pause. What's happening right here? So Gideon, he's got his 300 men. The Lord wakes him up. It's time for battle. The Lord is speaking to Gideon. Time to go to battle. But he's a fleece guy. And so before Gideon can even go, well, Lord, let's think about this. Or maybe, Lord, we could wait a little bit. Or maybe, Lord, we could train a little bit longer. Before he can say anything to the Lord, the Lord says, but. If you're afraid, go down to the camp. Now for me, as I read this passage, this is one of the greatest examples of grace in the entire Old Testament. Grace, unmerited favor, unearned favor. That's what this is because Gideon has already had the fleece test twice. The Lord doesn't owe him another sign that he's with him. But what does he do? He sends him down to the battle line. And he's overhearing this conversation from the enemies. And think about what he hears. He hears about a Midianite saying, I had a dream. And what a bizarre dream, right? About a barley loaf rolling in to a camp. I mean, does he have a gluten sensitivity? What is this? But the very moment that this Midianite shares the dream is the very moment that Gideon's there to hear it. And then this other soldier hears the dream and he doesn't think, wow, that's a weird dream, man. He goes, oh, that's Gideon. That's Gideon. He's going to defeat us. 
So let's think about that for a moment. Who gave that Midianite that dream? The Lord. The Lord gave him that dream, right? The Lord went into the enemy camp because the Lord is transcendent and is everywhere and gives the enemy a dream about their own destruction. And then who gave that other Midianite soldier the correct interpretation of that dream? The Lord, right? The Lord gives the correct interpretation to the enemy. And what does he give Gideon? Perfect timing. Perfect providential timing to hear that. Do you see how the Lord worked all of that out? The Lord provided all of it, and it all came together. And what's Gideon's response? The right response. He worships the Lord. He praises the Lord. Thank you, Lord. He didn't worship before this. He didn't worship in the season of reduction, but in this moment of encouragement, he worships. And the truth is that as believers in Jesus Christ is that we should anticipate that we would go through hard seasons. But in those hard seasons, we get moments of encouragement. And all of us, all of us in our own temptation is that we don't want seasons of frustration or seasons of loneliness or seasons of hardship. We want seasons of encouragement. We want seasons of everything up and to the right. But so often, so often in life, we have hard seasons and moments of encouragement. And it's so very important that we don't ignore the moments of encouragement looking for the seasons of encouragement. We need to take hold of these seasons of encouragement and they need to become milestones for us of the Lord's faithfulness, of the Lord's presence, of the Lord's ability to provide. So that way, as we go through these hard seasons, and they can be so disorienting, that we can look back at that moment of encouragement and go, yes, the Lord is with me. Yes, the Lord is good. Yes, the Lord is faithful. Why do the Israelites, when they come into the land of Israel, stack stones up? It's a monument to the Lord's provision of bringing them into the land. Why does Elijah in 1 Kings 18 stand up memorial stones before he prays and calls down fire from heaven as a memorial of what the Lord was about to do. And so I have to ask you this question today. Are you taking stock of these moments of encouragement? Or are you missing them because you're looking for a season of encouragement? We need to write them down. We need to share the stories. They need to be testimonies because we're going to have hard seasons and we have to be able to look back to these moments of encouragement. This is what Gideon gets. He gets a moment of encouragement. We need to take stock of that. So seasons of reduction are to increase our dependence. We need to be taking stock of these moments of encouragement not looking for seasons of encouragement. Finally this, this last part here. Second half of verse 15. And 
Gideon returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets in the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, and I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp, and at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah and as far as the border of Avel Moholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Let's pause there. So what happens? So Gideon's fired up. He's ready to go. He goes, gets his 300 men. He says, we're going to divide up into three companies, 100, 100, 100. We're going to have jars, glass jars, with torches, and then we're going to have trumpets. They're going into battle. What do they forget? Swords, shields, bows and arrows, things you normally want for battle. They go with torches, And with trumpets. And they break them. They blow the trumpet. And what happens? The Midianites all turn on themselves. Throws them into chaos. What in the world's going on here? Well, again, we go back to the Torah. Back to Deuteronomy. What did the Lord promise the Israelites? That if you are obedient... I will send your enemies into chaos. And they'll kill themselves. Who won that battle? The Lord, right? This is so important for you and I. Because as Americans and business and home, we are driven by results. We are chasing results. We are chasing outcomes. We say we want it to look like that. It's my job to make it look like that. And the truth is that in the, with the Lord, the Lord has not tasked us with the outcome or the result. The Lord has tasked us with obedience. Our job is to obey and trust the Lord for the results. The strong man chases the results. The weak man focuses on obeying. Think about this. Gideon, he's a weak man. Boils the army down to 300 men. It's a weak army. They go into a battle with torches and trumpets. That's weak preparation. But what are they doing? They're doing exactly what the Lord called them to do. And the Lord gives them the results. The Lord blesses them. So my, my admonishment for each one of us as Christians that we need to stop hiding the weakness. Stop running from the weakness. Stop ignoring the weakness. Stop coming in here on Sunday morning on your worst day and someone says, how are you doing? You say, I'm great. Stop lying. 
and acknowledge what's real. I'm weak, and I need the Lord. And I need other people to encourage me to take hold of those moments of encouragement. And I need to take life one day at a time and simply focus on obeying. Because that's all the Lord gives us. It's one day at a time. One moment at a time. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. But he said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Let me close with this story of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary in the 1800s who was going to go to China and bring the gospel that had been choked out. The gospel's been choked out of China many times. And as Hudson was sailing to China, he was going to revolutionize the modern mission movement where instead of trying to bring his English culture with him, he was going to adapt and adopt the culture of the Japanese and simply bring the gospel to him. But on the way, the ship lost the wind that was pushing its sails. And the ship began to drift towards an island that was well known for having inhabitants who were cannibals. And the ship was getting so close that they could see the people beginning to build fires on the shoreline. And Hudson went to the captain and he said, what can we do? And the captain said, there's nothing we can do at this point. And Hudson said, there are three other Christians on board this ship. May we retire to our quarters and pray? And the captain looked at him like, sure, go right ahead. So Hudson and the three Christians, they went down into the quarters and they began to pray. And after some moments, Hudson came back up and he said, will you please put the sails back up? And the sailors said, there's no point, there's no wind. And he said, please, will you put the sails back up? So they put the sails back up. And the moment that those sails went up, a strong wind came and pushed, pushed that ship away from the shoreline, out of that cove, and back on to the shores, or back to the sea to reach the shores of China. And Hudson would write in his diary, and he said, before I ever reached the shores of China for the mission that the Lord had for me, he needed to remind me of this, that I must bring everything to him in prayer. And towards the end of his career as a missionary, as he achieved worldwide fame because of how far and how wide the gospel had gone in China as a result of his proclamation, someone came to him and they said, Hudson, how is it that you've been so impactful with the good news of Jesus Christ? And Hudson said, I've always thought about it like this. 
that the Lord searched the whole world through for a weak person to do His will. And He came to me and said, Hudson, you're weak enough. You'll do. May you and I no longer hide or run from the weakness, but the same words of Paul would be true in our own life. When I am weak, then I am strong. Because it's in our weakness that we recognize who do we fully need? The Lord. Not just for salvation, but for everything. Can you pray with me? Father, it's a hard thing to do in this life to acknowledge that we're not enough. It's a hard thing in this life, Lord, to admit that we're frail, that we're failing, that we don't know the answers. And yet, Lord, you desire to use that very thing so that you may be exalted and glorified so that we know that what happens is not a result of our own effort, but from your hand. And so I pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts this morning to begin to confess where we've been hiding and where we've been lying so that way we can truly begin to depend on you, Lord. Because you want to use us for your glory. May we be willing vessels now, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.